Good morning. My name is Aubrey. If we haven't met before, I do hope to get to meet you. We'll have coffee and bagels after the service. By the way, my mother-in-law is here. Now, I don't know why some of you are giggling. She's over here, Miss Hickey. So glad you're here. Okay. Um, Today is Pentecost Sunday. And so our passage for this morning is the, the, the bit that Brenda read to us from Acts chapter 2 just a few minutes ago with all of that strange wind and fire and the miracle and tongues and this glorious mix of languages and what in the world is this all about? Well, here's the deal. This is one of those moments in the Bible where to understand what's going on You have to have a sense of the story the Bible's been telling since the very first page. This is one of those passages whose deep meanings are revealed when you see it in relation to the whole story the Bible's telling. So, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, turn to the first page right after the note from Aunt Martha giving you the Bible as a gift when you were seven years old. Genesis chapter 1, the first page. Okay, this is so important to understanding Acts 2. You have to start on the first two pages of the Bible. And here's what's going on. In Genesis chapter 1, we meet God, the central character of the story the Bible tells. One way to to wrap your mind around Genesis chapter 1 is to think of it like you're showing up at an art exhibition. And as you go through Genesis chapter 1, you're taking this tour. And you're seeing this remarkable uh, art. You're seeing this thing that's been produced. This world that's been ushered into existence. And, and, And at the end of the tour, you're given an opportunity To meet the artist. That's Genesis chapter 1. God makes everything. Everything that exists. You're supposed to read Genesis 1 like walking through the new art show in our gallery. Just amazed. And, And thinking to yourself, who in the world did this? What must this person be like that could make such beautiful things? And so in Genesis 1, you're seeing all of this glorious world and cosmos come into existence and then and when you get to verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1 things get really interesting see the first line of the bible is in does anybody know this in the beginning god created it's the main verb of the of Genesis chapter 1 created god made everything when you get to verse 27 that verb comes back with a vendetta. It's used three times in one sentence. Now that's really important because the Hebrew people who wrote this part of the Bible, they, when they wanted to say something was better than everything else or bigger than everything else, they, they had a special way of doing it. We have something in the English language. It's a piece of grammar called the superlative. If, if you wanted to say, for example, that you went to church today and the preacher was the most bald person, the baldest ever, we can, we can make a superlative in two ways. We can either use the word most, like most, um, be- you could say the preacher was the most beautiful person. Um, that's the superlative. Or you, or you could add EST on the end of something, um, The Hebrews didn't have either of those ways. 
the way they would make something the superlative was they would say the word three times. So in Isaiah 6, when I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his glory filled the temple, turning his robe filled the temple, and the seraphim were flying around. Does anybody know this passage? What were they singing? Holy, holy, holy. That's just their way of saying holiest. Okay? So when the first verb of Genesis 1 is in the beginning, God created. Wow, look at what he created. Then when you get to verse 27, and suddenly that verb comes back three times. It's a way of saying, buckle your seatbelts. This is the best part of it all. Like you've seen everything, and just around the corner is the Mona Lisa. Right? This is the most amazing thing. Look what it says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's either bad writing or good writing. It's really bad to use the same word three times in a row in the same sentence. Unless you're being hyper-intentional. Unless you really want to get something across. Now, why is God so committed to, to drawing an underline under the act of creating humans? Because they are the high point of creation. It's not that we're the most beautiful thing God made. I mean, look around, right? There are beautiful things in creation, right? It's not that we're the only thing that can communicate. It's not that we have opposable thumbs. It's not that we can have relationships. The, the amazing thing about humans is that they are in the image of God. That's the only thing. That's it. Humans bear God's image. That's why they're the high point. Now, why did God suddenly make a creature out of this glorious cosmos that bears his image? Why did he do that? Because he wanted humans to do something nothing else could do. He wanted humans to do something that the Rocky Mountains can't do and that apes can't do and snakes can't do and wind can't do. He wanted to create a creature in his image, to bear his image, to, to bring into this world all of God's love and goodness and wisdom and to reflect back to the creator the praises of creation. See, at the heart of the story the Bible tells is that humans are to be royal priest. Royal priest. The priestly part of our job as humans is that we are to worship God. We're priests. We're to sum, uh, sum up the praises of creation before the face of God and to live lives of thankfulness and gratitude to God to sing his praises. We're, we're made to be priests, all of us, men and women, children, old people, really old people, all of us. The royal part of our job means that we are not only to be priests, but we're to function as children of the high king. We're, we're to function as um, the agents of God in this world. In order for this world to function and flourish, God designed it to only get its best when humans are stewarding it. God has always been a working through humans God. God made us to celebrate and worship and procreate and take responsibility within the rich and vivid developing life of this world. God made humans to have authority over creation for the sake of the flourishing of the world. We are royal and we are priests. We're called to responsibility within the world. We're called to authority over the world. Now, 
What's interesting is when you get to chapter 2 and you see how this plays out. Here we see um, creation all over again but from a different perspective. In Genesis 2, we see Adam and he's placed in a garden. But, but don't think of this garden like my garden. My little backyard garden, you know, with my tomato plants and okra and corn. And yesterday I planted radishes and it's about the size of this platform. No, when you read garden here, you need to think major national park, okay? You need to think Shenandoah National Park, 200,000 acres. Or maybe Yellowstone, 2 million acres. Or maybe even Denali, the national park in Alaska, almost 5 million acres. And you need to look at Genesis 2 and you need to see Eden as this massive national park with rivers running through it and animals and trees and notice why it says in verse 15 the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it this huge park the word work there work it it means disciplined work keep it it means concentrated attention this was how Adam was going to be a royal priest this was his particular way of being a royal priest this is he is going to be a gardener and as he draws out of this garden all of its potential he is being a royal priest he's a caretaker to that portion of the world God entrusted him. So just picture this in your mind's eye, okay? Think, think about Denali, nearly 5 million acres. And there's little old Adam in the middle of this national park, right? That's why it says in chapter 2, verse 18, it's not good that man should be alone. Like, holy cow, I'm not sure I can handle this. 5 million acres. So what does God say? I will make a what? A helper. It's the first time that word comes up in the Bible. So when it shows back up later, this is the moment it's established. I will make a helper suitable for him. Why does he need a helper? Because he's got big work to do and lots of work to do. In other words, Adam's in over his head. Here's a job he can't do on his own. He needs help. So God provides a helper. And what a feast awaits Adam and Eve. I mean, just imagine the potentials in that garden. All the incredible potential for developing agriculture and energy and music. Music hadn't been invented yet. It was just lying there waiting to be invented. And neighborhoods and architecture and housing and recreation and the arts and education and government and beauty and food and a rich relational family life. None of that was invented. All of that was just waiting. All of that was potential. And here was Adam and his job was to begin to develop all of this. All right. You've got to have that in your mind if you're going to get Acts chapter 2. All right, so turn to the book of Acts, and let's do with Acts exactly what we just did with Genesis. Let's start on the first page of Acts, Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just like in Genesis, there's this job that's given, and it's huge. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Here's the church. You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, that's cool. We know Jerusalem. We know the neighborhoods. And in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth, right? We're in Denali, right? We're not in your backyard garden. 
We're in this huge, like this job you've got to do is massive. And you are to be my witnesses. You need to tell your friends and your neighbors and your family that God is God and Jesus is Lord. And the powers of evil have been defeated and God's new world has begun. And because of the cross, the whole world is free to give allegiance to the creator who made it. And there are a thousand different ways of saying this. And depending on where the people are you're talking to and depending on where they're starting from and the context, you might have to explain who God is or what Jesus, some aspect of it. But to be Jesus' witnesses, it's not only to announce the gospel with our words. When he says, you will be my witnesses in all of these places, it's not just there's a lot of people to talk to. It's also there's a lot of work to do. Because being witness to Jesus is being a witness to his kingdom. It's being a witness through the work of justice and beauty. Evil has been defeated. The jailer's been overpowered. God's new world has begun. And, and our job is to be agents of that. Let, let me try to explain what I'm saying this way. If the gospel is only Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven, then to be a witness for Jesus is basically learn how to explain that to more and more people that Jesus died for them and urge them to believe it so they can go to heaven. But the, that view of the gospel, while not wrong, it's too small. It's a shrunken view. It, it's a shrinking of the gospel. And in shrinking the gospel down to something that small, Believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. You distort what the gospel actually is. That view of the gospel, you see, ignores what Jesus said the gospel was. Which is typically a dangerous move to make. That view of the gospel ignores Jesus' claim. The good news is that he's bringing the kingdom to earth. The good news is that he's launching God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. That view of the gospel, that it's only about Jesus died so you can be forgiven and you can go to heaven, that ignores the emphasis from page one of the Bible all the way through to the very last page. The emphasis on humans have a job. The emphasis that humans have a vocation. Our vocation is to be image bearers, to be royal priests, to reflect God's glory into the world and to reflect the praises of creation back up to the creator. In other words, when Jesus calls the church in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, it is a huge job. It's about announcing the gospel and being agents of the new creation, not only with our words, but in our deeds. It's about evangelism and justice and beauty in the areas of economics and agriculture and labor and business and healthcare and homemaking and marketing. And the list goes on and on. You see, the holistic view of the gospel does not lose the cutting edge of personal evangelism. Sin matters and forgiveness matter, but the reason they matter is because sin corrupts and distorts and it disables us from being truly human, from bearing God's image and being royal priests. And someone has to go and announce that amnesty for sinners is available. We are to be witnesses in the whole sense of that word to the good news that because of the cross, God's kingdom has arrived. Now that's that's the job. That's Adam being set in the garden. That's a lot of work to do. 
And then in verse 9, Jesus ascends into heaven. What does it mean that Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 9? It does not mean that Jesus left. I was struck last week in our gospel passage last week at the end of Luke's gospel. When Jesus ascended, it says they went back to Jerusalem rejoicing. Rejoicing is not what they would do if Jesus left. You know, if I'm rejoicing when my mother-in-law leaves, right? No, that's an inappropriate response to departure. Why did they rejoice? Because ascension is not about departure. What is going on? You see, for the early Christians and for the Jewish people, Jesus ascending into heaven, heaven is not somewhere else. It's not another place. Heaven and earth are not two different places. They are overlapping, interlocking spheres of one good creation. Heaven isn't far off. Heaven and earth are two dimensions of the same reality. And get this, heaven is the control room for earth in the Bible. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, it means he went to the corner office. It means he went to the CEO's office. That's why in our psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 2, when the nations are raging and they're throwing off the bonds and they're giving God the the middle finger of rejection, that's why it says God sits in heaven and laughs because he was, it's a prophecy of Jesus. The reason God laughs is because, who are these pipsqueaks? Jesus is in the corner office. They're not. He laughs because he says, I've set my son on Zion, my holy hill. So what's going on is that in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, when Jesus ascends into heaven, his ascension is his enthronement as the CEO, the ruler, the one who's in charge. Now with that fresh in our minds, we get to Acts chapter 2. And here we have the little old church in the midst of this massive world. And the church has been given this totally overwhelming job. Not only to announce the gospel, but to be agents of the kingdom, to bear witness through personal evangelism and acts of justice and beauty, to work for reconciliation and forgiveness, to implement the victory of God in the world. And this is tough. It's tough not only because it's big, it's tough because it's a battle. Because there are dark forces in our world fighting against forgiveness. You just try to forgive, right? Have you ever tried to work for justice and got your teeth kicked back in and been accused of injustice? Right? Have you ever tried to make a beautiful thing and then it get rejected? There are dark powers fighting the kingdom of God in our world. They want to keep the world in their grip. There are forces in our world that deal in death and destruction. There are forces that demand human sacrifices. There are monsters that are large in our world, and they have been conquered, but they can lash their tails with anger, and they can do serious damage. And so here's the church, and it's been given this huge job and this difficult job. Look at the church at the beginning of Acts 2 and recognize a replay of little old Adam at the beginning of Genesis 2. A massive job, a huge responsibility, incredible authority, and there is something that is not good. What is it? It's that they need a helper. 
They need a helper suitable for them. So just like with Adam, God sends a helper. A helper for what? For the work. For the big job to help the church do what God has called the church to do. Do you see it? That, and that's what's underneath all of those dark and dense sayings of Jesus in our gospel passage. In John chapter 15 and 16 where he declares that he will send a helper. That will prove the world is wrong when, about what it says sin is. That sin is not believing in Jesus. The world gets confused about what real sin is. And real righteousness is. And real judgment. And it's the Spirit's job to convince the world. And to convict the world. But how will the Spirit do the Spirit's work? That's the point of Pentecost. The Spirit of God does not do its work independent of the church and and it's so easy to read john chapter 15 and john chapter 16 as if to say oh good god's going to send the spirit he's going to take care of all this no the gift of the spirit to the church is so that through the church God does his work in the world. And it's through our common life and our witnessing life. And it's through our own struggles for holiness and unity. And our refusal to obey rulers when they tell us to disobey God. The church with the spirit is to be the community builders. The joy bringers. The wisdom bringers. The culture makers who are contributing to the flourishing of Harrisonburg. Look. To bear witness to Jesus is a multi-dimensional thing. To reflect God's image means to stand between heaven and earth. To adore the creator and bring his purposes into reality on earth as it is in heaven. Now, think about it this way. When you get to Acts chapter 2, the disciples are doing good. It says at the end of chapter 1, they are in unity. They are praying and they are studying the scriptures. That's pretty good. But it's clear that it's not enough. Unity is not enough. Scripture study is not enough. Prayer is not enough. They are still alone. They need something to be witnesses in the world. They can't get the job done with Bible study alone or prayer alone or unity alone. They are like Adam in the garden. They are in over their head. They need help. They need a helper. So the Father sends the Spirit. And then they move out and they speak with boldness that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Death has been defeated. Victory is available. And every single one of us is gladly invited to come in to join the party, to discover forgiveness for the past and an astonishing destiny in the new creation and an incredible vocation in the present. And all it requires to belong to the new creation with that banner of love over the doorway, all that is required is that you turn from the idols whose power has already been broken and you join in the celebration Of Jesus' victory. Look, Pentecost is the moment in the story when the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples becomes the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. From the day of Pentecost until now and forevermore, when a person is baptized, they are given the gift of the Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, The Father gave him the Spirit. 
And in passage after passage after passage in the New Testament, it says that in baptism, you receive the Spirit. Why? Because it's not good to be alone. And God is going to, three, three children, Ivy and Matthew and Lexi are going to be baptized this morning. And they are going to be given by God a gift, the gift of his spirit. And for the rest of their life, they're going to know they've got the Holy Spirit. You know how they're going to know it? Because they were baptized. Do you know how I know I'm married? Because I, I had a wedding. And there were people there and they saw it. And look, don't believe that God will use a wedding to make a marriage, but he can't use a baptism to give his spirit. Like, God gives gifts and rituals. And God gives the gift of his spirit in baptism. And so here's the interesting thing. For the rest of Lexi's life, or Matthew's life, whenever they're afraid, afraid to share the gospel, afraid that they're going to be rejected, afraid to do the hard work of justice and beauty, whenever they're discouraged, whenever they grow to think they can't change, they can't get better, they need to grab themselves by their baptism. They need to say, I've been baptized. You know what it says? In first, I encourage all of you to memorize 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. When I was a senior in high school, and I was beginning to learn to be public with my faith, and I remember there were these moments where I would get so afraid to tell somebody the gospel. And I had memorized that verse. For God has not given me a spirit of fear, but power and love and so am I. And I would quote it. And I would remember that inside of me is the power of God. And the fear that I'm facing is weaker than that. Listen, when you are afraid that you can't change, when you are afraid that you are doomed to your inner impulses, when you are afraid to tell somebody and to announce the gospel, Remember, you were baptized, and at your baptism, you were given a helper. You were. And when you're afraid that you can't change or afraid that you can't be public with your faith, you are forgetting that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but he's given you a spirit of power and love and sound mind. Pentecost is that moment. Church of the incarnation, God generously gives his spirit. And this morning, we're going to get to see him give his spirit to three more people. Let's be Pentecostal. Let's be people who rejoice in the gifts of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.